BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. I'm Matthew Sweet and I'm here with an emotional message. It's about the Arts and Ideas podcast and the state you'll get into if you download the discussions and short talks from this year's Free Thinking Festival. We have all the ideas and now we have all the feels. How angry should our politics be? Really angry or not quite so angry? Do our pets love us or are they just playing us for processed meat? Why do we love weeping at the movies? Should doctors and nurses cry? The BBC Arts and Ideas podcast. You push our buttons and we'll push yours. I'm Andrew McGregor, presenter of BBC Radio 3's Record Review. Welcome to this podcast edition of Building a Library. David Owen Norris joins me to discuss Elgar's E minor violin sonata. Norris, good morning. Good morning. And uh, before we dive into the music itself and your short list of recordings, just give us a little more context for the sonata. Well, Elgar had been finding the uh, the war rather trying and he'd had a lot of throat trouble. And so in March 1918, he had an operation which cleared things up a little bit. And Lady Elgar found this country retreat at Brickwells near Fittleworth in Sussex. And uh, he went down there and found that the woods inspired him. But imagine... Imagine the frustration, he hadn't got a piano. <laughs> and the, uh, the, the, the Elgar, of course, improvised his way to many of his pieces sitting at the piano. And so on the 19th of August, 1918, Mr Aylwin's wagon brought the piano and Elgar sort of burst into creativity with this sonata. And ten days later, just ten days later, at the end of August, W.H. Reed, the leader of the London Symphony Orchestra, came and played it through a, a, an early version with him. So this is a sort of a dam bursting in Elgar's life. And who's going to introduce the sound world to us? Well, we, we'll start by listening to Vengerov playing it, uh, uh, the, the fantastic violin playing. Uh, listen to the repeated top E's and see if you think Vengerov really believes Elgar. <laughs> The opening of Elgar's E Minor Violin Sonata. Not as you might have imagined for our first recording, a pair of Brits. That was Maxim Vengerov with pianist Revital Chachamov, their 1995 Berlin recording, studio recording uh, for Teldec. What's good? What's less good about it? You mentioned well, what, the, what, the what, E's. What, oh, well, the E's. I don't think he quite believes that Elgar wanted all those six or seven top E's repeated. But uh, but what I love about that playing, quite apart from the beautiful violin playing, is that the, the, the two of them together play everything that we heard there as a single paragraph. Uh, 
all Elgar's ideas bound together and flowing past us so that we can see the, the wood for the trees, as it were. You know, we're, we're given the, the un, uninterrupted view of the Brinkwell's woodland, as it's, it were. It's beautifully lyrical, song-like. It play, well, it? It's, it's a very varied, uh, very varied piece. Of course, there's lots yeah. of opportunity for lyricism. But that bit that goes, rum, pum, 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 Basil Maine, Elgar's first biographer, who wrote while Elgar was still alive, has a wonderful phrase there. He said, this passage could only be by Elgar. And I was thinking, I read that and I thought, well, actually, there's so much of Elgar that could only be by Elgar. Um, that's one of his great strengths, isn't it? I mean, you listen to something and, oh, you, it's, it's Elgar. And there's one or two, this sonata, almost more than any other work that I can think of, presents you all the things that are Elgar. And that, that's one of them, of course, and the other we'll is the lyricism. Hearing, we'll be hearing others. We and shall. I'm sure you will point them out to us as we go. But uh, <laughs> you, you, you mentioned the problem with um, sort of believing in those repeated E's. Who gets it? Well... Tasmin Little gets it very much. Tasmin's recorded it with Martin Roscoe, and uh, she knows that those repeated E's are Elgar's initials. That's sort of not a flippant remark, of course, to say that the note E is Elgar's initials. I mean, many of Elgar's significant pieces are in E. These late chamber works, the uh, Cello Concerto, well, that's not a chamber work, that's in E. Uh, this violin sonata is in E, although people keep saying it starts in A minor. No, it doesn't. It starts <laughs> exactly as the first song of Sea Pictures, Elgar's first great masterpiece. Elgar's Sea uh, Pictures begins, the Sea Lullaby one, with, with a sort of plagal cadence, and that's what the violin sonata does as well. String quartets in E minor as well, and Elgar, E.E., used to refer to himself as the octave, so these are significant It's notes. a cipher. It's, yeah, it's a, it's it is. Cipher. He was very interested yeah. in codes and ciphers, of course. Well, um, that was Tasman Little and Martin Roscoe, um, recorded mm. in 1999, and um, she equals Vengeroff for that um, oh, lyricism and playing, the, the power it? and passion of the playing, doesn't she? But we're going to turn to something that's a piece of history. Well, we are, but can I explain why we're going to turn straight to that? Because what we've heard is the slight different... Tasmin plays the tunes in a slightly deconstructive way. She shows us... We heard Wengerov 
paste everything together. Yeah. Now we've heard Tasmin show us how those phrases were made. Albert Sammons, who played with Elgar himself very frequently, recorded it in 1935, and he, get, he, he has more the Wengerov approach, and wonder, what he does with his left hand is incredible. That, with Albert Sammons and William Murdoch, that's, that's the shortest performance I've heard. But what I like about it, and it, it's the shortest because they express the synthesised phrases that Elgar has painstakingly put together rather than spelling out the individual uh, syllables, as it were. But they don't sound in a hurry. Even though it's the shortest, oh, it's not really as it were the fastest. Yeah. Uh, just at the end there, there's a very interesting bit of notation that across the violin strings. On the first note of each group of four, Elgar puts a hairpin up and down. And some people think that that's to show vibrato. Uh, Salmon's, as you heard, just lengthened that note a little bit so mm. that we hear a tune. Lydia Mordkovich, uh, with Julian Milford, she tries a more of the vibrato approach, but of course vibrato takes time and so Julian Milford's echoes have to hesitate a bit. But again, very beautiful here.
that was Lydia Mordkovich with Julian Milford in the first movement of the Elgar Violin Sonata. Really interesting hearing that after um, Salmons and, and Murdoch 60 years earlier. But there were that sort of micro rubato, effectively, when she's lengthening those notes yes. to apply the vibrato, it gives, it gives it a strange sort of lurching quality, doesn't well, it? Well, it, it's, it's a particular sort of expression, isn't it? I mean, yeah. the thing that I worry about more there was that very exciting bit when they rushed ahead. And, of course, you, you want to change the speed with Elgar, but it's a question of, of to what degree. I mean, we're moving on to a, a little waltz. Elgar takes just the fifth bar of the violin part and turns it into a little waltz eventually. And um, sometimes you, you wish this could move a little more waltzingly, particularly when it's accompanied by the violins playing just descending semitones. But Max Rostal with Colin Horsley, Max Rostal makes a descending semitone into the most beautiful melody you've ever heard. Extraordinary playing. Rostar there with Colin Horsley playing the Elgar in 1954. Lovely hearing him again. Um, Austrian-born Brit, a student of Karl Flesch, died in 1991. Really lovely sound. It's wonderful playing, isn't it? Yes. It's, and, and I'm always pleased to see, whenever I get my Henle Beethoven violin sonatas out, Max Rostal edited the violin part, <laughs> and he's the last person that I would have expected, actually. It's, it's interesting, 1954, of course, was the nadir of Elgar's reputation. In 1954, nearly nobody thought that Elgar was a great composer, which is very odd to think now. Especially when we're listening to a work like this. Yeah. And um, thinking just what a wonderful work it is. Mm. Uh, right, who have we got next? Well, this we're is another, going to, uh, another European couple. Yes, we're going to um, Van Coelen and, uh, and Ronald Brautigan, Isabel Van Coelen and uh, Ronald Brautigam, who, who uh, we'll hear them play that little waltz when it returns because Ronald Brautigam uses a trick that he learned at the forte piano because, of course, he plays forte pianos as well as pianofortes. And uh, he, instead of doing the accent to show the rhythm, he slightly lengthens the note. But unfortunately, he hasn't learned his notes underneath those semitones that Max Rostar played so beautifully. And you'll hear what are supposed to be octaves turn into sixths from time to time because he hasn't read it right. Thank you. 
Isabel van Curlen and Ronald Brautigam, who it turns out isn't playing all the right notes. I'm surprised, given that it's a studio recording and well, let, let's listen on. Let's see what else we might discover, <laughs> shall we? But for, okay. that, that, that last bit where Elgar's going ta da 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 ta da da ta da da, it's a very good insight into his way of composing and the way that he glues different elements together into phrases. And it occurs to me that it's a little bit like marquetry, uh, where different polished patterns, you know, a polished surface made of hundreds of different pieces of wood. And Elgar puts his little pieces of music in and polishes the surface. And it's, it's even, it occurs to me, it's a little bit like pointillist painting. Um, you, you, he puts his dot... And the whole point of the dot is that it's going to form this wonderful picture when you stand, when you stand the right away. distance away. And that's the important thing. Or even, I mean, if you imagine looking at Surah, mm. uh, some Surah paintings, it's not only the question of how far away you are from them, but what angle you look at them from. And I think this is quite a useful way to think about Elgar because the angle is a bit like the speed that you play at. So... Surat's angles, you might walk past a painting and the, the, the painting will sort of change and move as you mm. walk past it. And similarly, you might walk past Elgar's wonderful polished marquetry at different speeds. And the question is, how different? We've already heard people, in my view, slightly misjudging the speeds. Somebody who never misjudges the speeds is Nigel Kennedy with the late Peter Pettinger. Nigel Kennedy with Peter Pettinger in 1984, when Kennedy was 28. And it's interesting, that uh, very ending there is, is the exact same harmonic progression that opens the piece. You get a sort of A minorish chord followed by an E chord, E major in that case. And so Elgar is putting everything back together again. And that but, but resolving it as well, yes. giving us that, that sort of major key glow at the end of the movement, yeah. which is wonderful. I love also that Kennedy's prepared to be a little rough yes, at well, times, he, he, and it works, doesn't he, it? He, 
treats the piece as if he really knows it. And he really does know it. I mean, and he seems really to understand it. It's a, it's a remarkable reviling play. Just to mention, you were saying about... We were mentioning Ronald Brout again. That last little bit of difficult quavers in the piano. Broutigan plays them a third too high. But we haven't got time to listen to all those mistakes. Well, there's another um, one we haven't heard, heard yeah. yet, which is bound to come up. Yehudi Menuhin. Um, yes, and well... Obviously such a famous account of the teenage Menuhin with um, Elgar himself conducting the violin concerto. And um, this recording of the violin sonata was made... Much later, Abbey Road uh, Studios, 1978. 1978, yes, yeah. with, uh, with Hefzibar, um, his, uh, his, his accompanist. Uh, well, frankly, Andrew, this is why we haven't heard it yet. So Hefzibar Menuhin doesn't seem to have had that instinctive understanding that we hear in in Kennedy, for example. I mean, how she laboured her way up that rather Machiavellian five-bar phrase which should emerge from the deep like a great sea monster and she sort of painstakingly climbed up. I'm afraid it, it's, the, it's one of the very longest performances and sometimes a long performance is a beautiful performance like Tasmin's, but uh, in this case it's, it's just a long performance. It's rather effortful, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, OK. Um, We've reached the middle movement. And yeah. it's interesting, Elgar marks it romance yes. and andante, so it's not a slow movement. No, uh, I mean, it, it, it depends who's playing it. I mean, <laughs> some people can't, uh, can't, can't keep away from slow music. And it has got slow music in it, and for an interesting reason, because his muse, his, his carefully not-too-significant other, Alice Stuart wortley Alice Millet, uh, her maiden name, Millet's daughter, who was uh, a very important source of inspiration to Elgar. Uh, while he was writing this in August 1918, she wrote to him from Tintagel and said that she'd broken her ankle. And so he wrote back to her about this movement and he said, a fantastic, curious movement with a very expressive middle section, a melody for the violin. They say it's as good or better than anything I have done in the expressive way. I, I like that they. That was Lady <laughs> Elgar, of course, at that point. Uh, this I wrote just after your telegram about the accident came and I send you the pencil notes as first made at that sad moment. Now, the, the idea that Elgar writes a great piece of music because a friend of his has broken her ankle of course, teeters on the edge of bathos. But that's not the case. I mean as Elgar said, music is all around you. You reach out and you take what you want from it. And this thought that his friend had broken her ankle merely caused Elgar to reach inside himself and take out some music. It was merely the catalyst for a very beautiful very beautiful tune. But we start off with the uh, the curious fantasy, the wood magic that Lady Elgar wrote about. And we'll start with uh, Van Koelen and, and Brautigam again and see what they make of the idea of wood magic.
So that's Hud Coylan and Brautigam, and that is quite a robust view of the music, and for me that's a little bit prosaic, although I have heard performances where it's played almost as a circus piece with that little do 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 boom played almost like have a banana rather yeah. than wood magic. But Now, Tasman Little and Martin Roscoe, they take a more subtle approach and they raise another very interesting interpretative problem, which is that Elgar now and again puts a comma. Now, well, obviously he doesn't want it to flow on, but, I mean, how big is a comma? So there's Tasman Little and Martin Roscoe, and I suppose she slightly takes the... So she sort of loves it to bits, I feel, sometimes, and shows us uh, these commas perhaps a little bit too much, I don't know. Now, the melody catalyzed by Alice Stewart Wharton is Broken Ankle, and it's a tune of falling semitones yet again, and sevenths, rising sevenths this time. Wengeroff plays it magnificently. Here's the climax. Maxim Wengerov and Revital Chachamov. And it feels 
right, doesn't mm. it? But it's huge. I mean, uh, Vengerov's um, sort of circular bow, isn't well, it's, it? It's <laughs> wonderful. It seems endless, doesn't it? And the tone. And um, you think that you can't produce any more sound than that. And there's more, and it's not strained. Yeah. It's, a, it's a wonderful, big, generous sound. It is. It? He, he, well, it, it's that, that is a very wonderful way to play and, that and, tune. But, but interesting, not too slow. And no, what, what, it's whatever. romance. It's not supposed to be too slow. It doesn't need to be too slow. What I love about uh, just to talk about Elgar again for a moment, rather than Vengerov, is the way that that at the end the violin plays the same thing three times in different octaves and that happens all the way through and the other thing that makes it a really good violin sonata for violin and piano is that Elgar has conceived all sorts of two-part textures where first of all the violin plays part A as it were while the piano plays part B and then immediately afterwards the piano will play part A while the violin plays part A so there's built in composed in exchange interchange in between the in between the instruments and thinking about, I was just thinking about um, sort of 60-year-old Elgar just walking through um, the, those trees, the woods um, mm. at, at, at Brinkwells. And, uh, well, I wonder what a walking pace would have been for him, what Andante meant, um, because we've got so many different examples here, haven't we? It's very interesting. Well, Andante, of course, means walking. Yes, yes, you're quite right. And the walking pace is interesting. Gerald Northrop Moore, the very great Elgar scholar, has a theory that quite a lot of Elgar's tempos depend upon cycling speeds <laughs> because Elgar so often conceived music while he was cycling, as you know very well. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so uh, probably th- th- it'd be interesting to look at Elgar's speeds that he composed when he was mainly cycling and compare them with the speeds when he was mainly sauntering through a summer wood. We shall talk about this afterwards. I think we should. <laughs> right, right, who's next and well, uh, what, what sort of tempo have we got here? Well, now, Kennedy plays that melody daringly slowly, but this is the reward. That top note he holds longer than you could dream. That's something, isn't it? Well, after that amazing climax, the fantasy returns and there's a wonderful detail at the end of the movement where the piano comes off its chord and it leaves the violin note, as it were, alone in the wood. And then, as Elgar said, the last movement starts very broad and soothing, like the last movement of the Second Symphony, and Tasmin Little really gets it. Now, just to say, it's extraordinarily difficult to find a place to interrupt Elgar at this stage (laughs) in his career, but we shall have to interrupt him and we stop where we do for a particular reason.
beautiful playing from Tasmin Little. Now, hold those chords that you heard in the piano in your mind, the, the, the ones just at the end there, because we're about to hear Ronald Brattigan play them a tone too high, turning subdominant harmony into dominant harmony, exactly the opposite of what Elgar wrote. Another one of those threefold repetitions in the violin, so that makes the falling seventh that lies behind that theme ever more explicit. Now, we've heard several of Ronald Brattigam's misreadings, and I can't tell you how disappointed I was. I'd saved this recording up to last for my listening process because I was confident I was going to enjoy it so much. I mean, I remember his Poulenc flute sonata yes. a year and a half ago, whatever that was. And and I, I just... Well, perhaps he's too busy to to learn the notes properly. But, I mean, we've heard several, and I've mentioned others, but there are is, others. Is, is he the only one who, who makes straight misreadings? Uh, no, there aren't. I mean, one of the things that he does that nobody else does, actually, is that he fills in chords with notes that Elgar didn't write. And that's a fundamental mistake with Elgar, because if Elgar could get away with writing three notes instead of four, he would. And if... Elgar wanted to leave us wondering where the harmony might go because he had been less than explicit. You know, it's not for Ronald Brattigan to come and put up a, a signpost. But lots of people play wrong notes in this sonata and it's, it's obviously not taken quite seriously enough, I don't think. I mean, Colin Horsley and Hefzibar Menuhin both forget that the key signature of E major has got a D sharp in it. Now, th- that's partly explicable because... It begins on that A minor chord. The whole sonata begins on that A minor chord, and it's continually sort of descending southwards towards the subdominant, you know, which is to say with, with D naturals. But they're not all D naturals, and uh, even Julian Milford plays a, a C natural in a cadence in D minor instead of a C sharp. And Wengerhoff, there's one extraordinary bit in that wonderful recording where Wengerhoff misreads a top E with, you know, X million ledger lines, but a harmonic on it, and he plays instead of playing a harmonic top E, he plays a B, and then immediately plays exactly the same phrase again with a B. I mean, I don't understand this sort of carelessness. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah. And, it's, and it's it's interesting having you pointing um, these things out because um, some of them I hadn't noticed, and one of the recordings, the Brandigan one, I haven't heard before. So it's a, it's 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 surprising. I, it's, I think it, there's still a residual. Oh well, it's only Elgar. Hmm. It's not Beethoven or anything. I sense there's about to be a winnowing. (laughs) Well, I I think I should winnow. I mean, I think we'll have to put aside the ones... Well, we'll have to put aside the ones, despite their many merits. I mean, Rostal's playing, uh, and all these people play wonderfully, but uh, we need to put the menuins aside because it's too slow. We need to put Rostal and Horsley aside because there are too many wrong notes and the recording isn't 
wonderful quality. And uh, Van Coylen and Brautigam were put aside. Now, Tasmin really understands Elka. And I, I have suggested that in the first two movements, perhaps she's just a little bit too explaining the phrases to us. But when I heard her third movement, I thought, well, actually, if you were somebody who had never heard the Elgar Violin Sonata, after that sort of explanatory performance of the first two movements, the way that she plays the third movement would make it into a wonderful way to hear the third movement from the first time. And where I want us to play is there's a wonderful moment where Elgar finally makes that falling seventh explicit. That one. Um, He marks a top B to be played on the A string. And Tasmin really finds a way to put that across. Tasman Little and Martin Roscoe, not just that falling seventh on the A-string, so beautifully done, but um, they just prove after it that there is all the time in the world here. Mm. Uh, this this particular movement in, in particular flows like, uh, well, as Mozart said, flows like oil. Mozart, uh, meaning olive oil, of course. <laughs> that's, what, uh, that's what Mozart meant. And it's just got that sort of wonderful liquidity. And um, I'm interested to see that despite the uh, mid-1930s sound quality, freshened up though it may be, we still have Albert Sammons and William Murdoch on the table. Well, this is such an extraordinary, interesting performance that I I can't leave it just yet. We're about to hear even William Murdoch succumb to Elgar's subdominant vertigo and play a D natural instead of a D sharp, I'm sorry to say. Everybody seems to play wrong notes, don't they? Um, But uh, there's a little bit of dialogue and... Very often in the more modern performances, it's it's like waiting for Godot. It, the, the the piano says something, and then there's a long pause, and then the violin, and so on. And Sammons and Murdoch get it as a real non-surreal di- dialogue.
Albert Sammons, who very often played Elgar's violin concerto with the composer conducting. Now, in the recapitulation there, you notice that Elgar sensibly gives us the main tune only once, and things seem to be shaping up for a perfectly reasonable sonata finale. But now Elgar springs a great surprise on us. And again, it's a surprise that seems to have a personal motivation. He'd intended to dedicate the piece to a, an old friend, uh, Marie Joshua. And he actually sent her the letter saying, you know, don't expect anything violently chromatic or cubist, but it's got some golden sounds in it. And before she could accept the dedication, she died. And so Elgar, hearing this unwelcome news back... Uh, at this moment, decided to reintroduce the broken ankle tune. But, of course, just as the broken ankle tune wasn't really the broken ankle tune, it was something deep inside Elgar that the broken ankle unlocked, so, too, this return of the beautiful melody is is not just because the intended dedicatee has died. What this is, is that... This is what turns it into a masterpiece. And Elgar decides to make even further explicit certain details of his style. Now, the first thing I ever learnt about Elgar's style when I learnt the organ sonata when I was 14 or something was my organ teacher said to me, oh, lots of falling sevenths in Elgar, and certainly we've heard them. Now, Elgar was able to focus everybody's attention on this element of his style when he brings the broken ankle tune back again by quoting from the Enigma variations in this. And he just goes, ta-da-da-da, with just a falling seventh. doesn't matter if you don't know that it's a quotation, although he puts it in big notes in the piano part, so it sounds like a quotation. doesn't matter. It's a falling seventh. And so what this turns the piece into is Elgar using his own style refined to the uttermost degree to investigate the ideas of loss because that's what the First World War was to him. He'd lost so many young men, some of whom he knew, some of whom... That's a whole other story connected with the cello concerto and so on. You know about that. But... uh, So that's why this is a really great work, because Elgar brings back this music that was yanked out of the middle of him and uses it to say, this is the elements of my style that reflect loss, and here's loss on a huge scale. And I think we ought to listen to Lydia Mordkovich playing it very beautifully from where Elgar writes our tempo back to speed.
songs, Falling Sevens, Hints of the Enigma Variations and the Broken Ankle Tune. The Lydia Morkovich and Julian Milford there in their Shandos recording. Um, who's left? We're down to well, a very small number that's of very, A very now, small number, yes. That, that's very beautiful violin playing, but her extreme changes of tempo don't quite work for me. And, we, of course, we've lost some of our contenders through carelessness. Vengerov, in the end, he sounds unsure about why the melody returns. Uh, Tasmin's Little, Tasmin Little's recording, I, I, I love that. But I think, in the end, perhaps it's, it's sort of over-explanatory first movement might get a bit beyond. And if only the sound were better for Albert Salmons, because it sounds as if William Murdoch is in Abbey Road Baptist that's Church problem, over the road, it? Because the, the violin is so present, yeah. and, and they've They've worked very hard on that sound. It, it, it sounds surprisingly good for 1935, but... Mm. He is a long way away. Yeah. But luckily, there's a reason why Nigel Kennedy's recording is so iconically famous. And when we hear him now, you'll hear the speeds change, but with proportion. And you'll hear him mark the rock bottom of Elgar's subdominant vertigo in the way that he changes a C-sharp into a C-natural. And don't miss the last note. And it's such a wonderful partnership with Peter Pettinger. The end of the violin sonata by Sir Edward Elgar, and that's the recording that rises to the top of the heap for well, David Owen Norris. So that's your overall building a library recommendation. It is, yes. It's a, it's a wonderful recording from 1984, and it really gives us the measure of the work's true stature, I think. And it reminds us also that it's written for Elgar's own instrument, because although Elgar improvised his music at the piano, Elgar was a very fine violinist. And I think... This sonata really sums up 
the whole of Elgar, even even better than the cello concerto does. I mean, the, the famous, famous cello concerto. But get to know the violin sonata and see what you think. David O. Norris, thank you very much indeed. That uh, recommended recording is Nigel Kennedy and Peter Pettinger. You'll find it on the Shandos label. Uh, full details, of course, on the Record Review website, where you'll also find some of Norris's other favourites, including that historic account with Albert Sammons and William Murdoch. And you've been listening to a podcast edition of Building a Library from BBC Sounds. Well, next week we have Biblical Plagues and the Parting of the Red Sea. Suzanne Aston joins me to compare recordings of Handel's Oratorio Israel in Egypt. That's at the same time, Saturday mornings from 9 on BBC Radio 3, on FM, online and on BBC Sounds, where you can discover more music, radio and podcasts like this one.